Good evening, everyone. My name is Marty Shaw, and welcome to a new episode of Murders and Mysteries of New England. As the holiday season is now upon us, many of us may be spending time with friends and family, making new memories and reliving the good old memories from our childhoods. I know for me personally, decorating a large Christmas tree I helped my family pick out comes to mind. For many of us, the holiday season is a joyous and happy time, but for one family, the holiday season is one of sadness and longing. Tonight, we are back in Maine with a new case, so if you'd like to hear more Maine cases, check out The Disappearance of Ayla Reynolds. And unfortunately, like The Disappearance of Ayla, the child in this case goes missing without a trace and is never found. Tonight's case will be focusing on the disappearance of Kurt Newton, so sit back, relax, and let's dive in. If you or someone you know is in an abusive situation, please reach out to a trusted friend, family member, or medical professional. No one deserves abuse, and no one deserves the trauma that comes with abuse. Kurt Newton was only four years old when he disappeared from his family's campsite in the Chain of Ponds, Maine. He was born on July 28th of 1971 and was born to parents Ronald and Jill Newton. Kurt had an older sister named Kimberly, who was only two years older than Kurt. He was born in Manchester, Maine, a little over four miles from the capital of Augusta. He stood at three feet one inch tall weighed 35 pounds, and had strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes. Now, Kurt was a very shy boy and didn't like to be too far from his mother for long periods of time. Kurt didn't like going into the woods, and when asked why he wouldn't go play in the woods with his sister Kimberly, Kurt said there were, quote-unquote, monsters in there. The Newton family decided to take a trip to Natonis Point Campground over Labor Day weekend of 1975. Natonis Point Campground was a remote campground situated in the Chain of Ponds Township, which was about six miles from the Canadian border. The Newton family was joined at the campground by three other families celebrating Labor Day weekend. On August 31st of that year, it started off as a pretty good morning. The family had a large breakfast, had a fire, and generally had a good family bonding morning. It had rained over the weekend, meaning there was mud everywhere on the campground. Jill had decided to wash a pair of muddy shoes only 50 yards from their camp, and Ronald had decided to get more firewood for the fire. When Ronald left in his truck to get more firewood, instead of playing with his sister Kimberly, Kurt decided to hop on his bright red tricycle and pedal after his dad, calling out for him as he followed. The last person to have seen Kurt was an 11-year-old named Lou Ellen Hansen. She was coming back from a walk that morning and saw the boy biking along the path. She stopped to ask the boy if he knew where his parents were, but instead Kurt ignored the question and continued to pedal. Less than an hour later, and under a mile away from the campsite, Kurt's tricycle would be found undamaged by John Hansen, 
Llewellyn's father, and a volunteer caretaker at the campsite. The tricycle was found on the side of the road at the edge of the woods. Thinking that a kid may have left the tricycle, and thinking not much else of it, John brought the tricycle back to the campsite and placed it in the dump. What John didn't know was that it belonged to Kurt, and that he was nowhere to be seen. When Ronald returned from bringing firewood to the camp, he was asked by Jill if Kurt was with him. When he responded that Kurt was in fact not with him, Jill became concerned about Kurt's whereabouts. She began to ask campers if they had seen Kurt, but nobody had saw the four-year-old boy. Jill's concerns for Kurt's whereabouts grew even more when she learned that Kurt's tricycle was found at the dump and believed Kurt may have been taken by someone. Jill was quoted as saying, My God, someone's taken him! Kurt was reported missing by the campground owner at 12.22 that day. Kurt's disappearance would be Maine's biggest and most intense search in the state's history. A small search party would be organized to comb the woods. All roads and trails within a five-mile radius of the campground would be searched, as well as the dump and its surrounding area. The campground and buildings on or near it would also be searched multiple times. The dump where Kurt's trike would be placed was bulldozed and workers sifted through the dirt in search of Kurt, and teams of volunteers would dig along the road. Holes underneath boulders were searched and searched again for Kurt before being marked with a slash until a good chunk of the woods would be marked with slashes. Even military helicopters and bloodhounds would be brought in to help in the search efforts, and it was known that Kurt was fond of military helicopters and was thought to have responded positively to the helicopters. But nothing would turn up that day. No traces of Kurt could be found. If Kurt had set off on foot after getting off his tricycle, his footprints would have been visible in the wet sand, but nothing was found. Not even tricycle tracks would be found, but this is presumed to have been because the tricycle wheels were smooth. On the night of August 31st, Jill thought she heard a child's voice in the woods near the dump and called his name for about 15 minutes. No response could be heard, and other searchers could not find anything. The next morning, September 1st, search dogs caught a scent of Kurt's pajamas, but beyond that could not find anything. The search continued, and on September 2nd, a C-130H gunship flew from the Eglin Air Force in Pensacola, Florida, and flew to the remote part of Maine to aid in search efforts. The gunship conducted a three-hour search for Kurt, and would be the first time the gunship would be used for a civilian search. The gunship was equipped with infrared sensors and a low-light television sensor used for nighttime use. This equipment was so sensitive that it could differentiate between the heat from a white median strip and the blacktop from 10,000 feet in the air. Jill would call to her son by saying such sentences as, quote, This is Mama. I want you to go to where you can see the sky. Come and wave to Mama. But even with the advanced technology, 
Kurt was nowhere to be found. A few factors played into the lack of Kurt turning up with the advanced technology. The gunship was battling with low-hanging clouds and heavy rain that day, making it so that it was so difficult for searches to be seen that some had to be rescued from the woods. Ronald had hurt his ankle early into the search and was limited in what he could do to help. But even with hurting his ankle, Ronald still did all he could to help in search efforts. He called for Kurt every night since the four-year-old went missing and was not getting enough sleep. This was to the point where friends laced his coffees with tranquilizers in hopes of helping Ronald sleep during the search effort. And by the fourth day, the tranquilizers took enough of an effect to make Ronald fall asleep while calling out to his son. By the fourth day, hopes that Kurt would be found safe were beginning to diminish. During the investigation, everyone that was on the campground at the time was interviewed. Polygraph tests were used on those whose statements needed verification, even though, through my research, polygraph tests are not always accurate. But, during this interview, one camper claimed she saw a white station wagon at the campground just after Kurt was last seen. According to the camper, the white station wagon drove away so fast that a cloud of dust could be seen coming from it. However, Nobody else that was interviewed saw a white station wagon on or near the campground, and no white station wagons were registered at the campground during the time. According to State Police Lieutenant G. Paul Falconer, quote, From the beginning, we never discounted the possibility that Kurt was abducted, but there are no facts to indicate he's not in the woods. From State Police Detective Richard Cook, who was head of the investigation during the time, was quoted as saying, quote, With so many children available in the cities, why would a kidnapper come to one of the most remote campgrounds in the state, hoping to find a child riding a tricycle alone down a deserted road? Investigators did not suspect foul play and thought that Kurt may have left the campsite and gotten lost coming back. However, Kurt's parents thought that Kurt may have been abducted and possibly taken over the Canadian border. Jill and Ronald stayed in the area for two more weeks before returning to Manchester without Kurt. Kimberly was to start the first grade during that year and stayed with friends while Jill and Ronald searched. Jill and Ronald began to make weekend trips up to Chainaponds Township to look for Kurt as they had hoped he may still be in the area and would be found safe. Missing posters were hung deep in the woods and warned hunters in the area to report any unusual signs. When fall turned to winter and the snow ran deep, Ronald took his snowmobile to search deeper into the woods to look for Kurt. He did this until the winter snow became too much to search for Kurt, and Ronald had to turn back. It was then decided that Kurt was and never was in the woods, and that wherever he was, there was still a chance he would be safe. Jill's determination to bring Kurt back home led the Newtons to pass out posters of the missing Kurt. Jill and Ronald traveled to Quebec City to pass out posters at gas stations, hoping to bring more attention to Kurt's disappearance and to bring him home. 
Soon, the operation spanned thousands of miles and included department stores and restaurants. Ronald bought thousands of stamps to mail out the missing child posters, and friends and family helped where they could, even going so far as to search out Yellow Pages telephone books to add photos of the missing child to them. Two years later, Kurt would have started school. Jill and Ronald, still determined to bring their son home, mailed his missing child poster to every superintendent in the country. This costed the family over $5,000 and took about six months to do. Many schools responded back with their sympathies, and some schools even responded back with pictures of students who looked like Kurt. Police from these school districts investigated these leads, but nothing came of the leads. Some of the students whose photos were mailed in were noted as looking very similar to Kurt, but none of these students were Kurt. There have been several reported sightings of Kurt, but none of these sightings were confirmed to have been Kurt. One sighting was from a man who said he saw a boy matching Kurt's description while camping in the Canadian Rockies. In the same week, two waitresses in Vermont that worked in a restaurant reported a boy matching Kurt's description. However, the boy was tracked down and found to not have been Kurt. The closest investigation came to finding Kurt was four months later, when there was another reported sighting of Kurt in New Orleans. The boy was shy, like Kurt, and only answered to names that had a K sound, like Kurt's name or Kenny. However, the boy was found to have also not been Kurt, bringing investigation back to square one. After an article was published in an issue of Yankee Magazine in 1979 about Kurt, more people came forward with claims of seeing Kurt in different areas, but these sightings did not lead anywhere. A few theories have sprung up regarding what happened to Kurt. For example, Kurt may have wandered too far into the woods to be found or fell into a body of water. Another theory is that Kurt was killed by a wild animal. There was a report that a captive bear was released into the woods just before Kurt was last seen. However, there is a problem with this theory there would have been some indication of animal activity in the woods. And to my knowledge of this case, there was no animal activity that would have led to this conclusion. In 2017, a woman claimed to be Jennifer Klein and the case got social media attention. Jennifer Klein was three years old and camping with her family when she disappeared from Moab, Utah on May 25th of 1974. There is some speculation that Jennifer fell into the Colorado River and drowned, but I am unsure if the body was found. The woman claimed she was abducted by members of a satanic cult, who also kidnapped Kurt and another child named Eden Patz. Eden was six years old when he disappeared from New York City on May 26 of 1974. A man named Pedro Hernandez was convicted of kidnapping and murdering Eden but Eden's body was never found. The claim from the woman was later debunked, leaving both Kurt's family and investigators without any leads on where Kurt could be. Kurt has never been found, 
and we are unsure if he is alive or not. If Kurt was alive, he would have been around 51 years old at the time of this recording. Kurt was last seen wearing a navy blue jacket with baseballs on it, a navy blue sweatshirt with the word Manchester across the front, a red jersey, red and black corduroy pants, mismatched white socks, and brown shoes. If anyone has any information leading to where Kurt could be, they are urged to call the Maine State Police at 207-289-2155. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed researching and writing about it. While Kurt may still be missing, talking about his disappearance and keeping his story alive is a step that we as civilians can do to help bring Kurt's family one step closer to finding out what happened to Kurt. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to give it a rating on the platform you are listening to this on. And stay tuned for the next episode, where we will continue to discuss murders and mysteries of New England.